We started last week in with this study of Mark just to, to get a picture of Jesus from Mark's perspective. Mark was a little different than the other gospel writers. For one thing, he was a lot younger. He was somebody who, growing up, heard things, knew a little bit about Jesus, but really came to maturity and faith after Jesus had died. He was a good friend of Peter's, and Peter had kind of led him along and told him the stories about Jesus. And so in the Gospel of Mark, Mark, I said last week, he's the ADD gospel. He's the one who just jumps around and just shows these little snapshots, and it's a youthful depiction of who Jesus was. It's a really helpful take for us because as Christians, what we are to be is people who follow Jesus. The rest of the Bible so often, it's all about Jesus, but sometimes we just forget that. We get caught up in the theology or we get caught up in different stories in the Bible and everything, and we forget that ultimately what our lives are, are lives that are dedicated to following a man who was also God, Jesus Christ. So it's helpful every once in a while to jump back into a gospel and just to see Jesus simply unplugged, uncut, just here's Jesus in these quick little snippets as Mark does. In the second chapter, we see Jesus from the perspective of a, of a young guy looking at Jesus and impressed with how radical Jesus was. And so I've entitled my message this morning, Jesus the Radical. Now, you may have a problem with that. The idea, wait a minute, Jesus was radical? Absolutely. And we need to understand a little bit about what that means. And so let me define some terms, and then we'll get into the second chapter and see why when Jesus came here, he just bowled people away with the radical nature of what he did, with what he taught, with who he is. And He's the one who we follow. He's the one who we want to become like. And so, you know, we tend to categorize people in general. And during this political season, you see a lot of it as, well, people are either conservative or they are liberal slash progressive. And that's kind of the way we categorize people. And a conservative is someone who looks at the way things are and they look back and they think, I don't know, I don't think we're getting too much better. We need to slow up, we need to wind the clock back, we need to slow down change and progress and discover what we had back in the day that, that we've since lost. Now, a liberal or a progressive is someone who looks at the way that things are and, and thinks we can make this better. We need to change things so that we can move into a world that's better than the one that we have now. And so there are good and bad things about both, and I don't know that anyone is pure one way or the other. The assumption behind a conservative, though, is that things are pretty messed up, and it doesn't seem like they used to be quite this bad. So we need to turn the clock back a bit. And we can certainly relate to that. We can see areas in which, man, society is deteriorating and spiraling down, and you just miss simpler days and easier times, and you, you bemoan progress. And so that's a legitimate concern and a legitimate position. On the other hand, you look at a progressive or a liberal, and 
you have to admire the fact that someone like that is saying, come on, we can do better than this. We can progress. We can change things and make them better. And so you love the optimism of someone like that. Someone who's progressive feels that we are able to evolve into a better world. And that's nice, and we see certainly in some areas we've made progress. But as you look at the progress and see what the price of it is and what it does in other areas, you start to wonder how much progress are we really making. The assumption behind being progressive or liberal, though, is the notion that we are able to use change in a way to improve the world. It's why so often liberalism is associated with the idea of evolution, the idea that things are getting better and can get better, that if you mutate, something can actually find beneficial changes and will improve. It's a great sentiment. The problem with with liberalism, progressivism, is the same problem with evolution. And that is, it seems that there's something built in within each of us. In physics, they would call it the law of entropy or the second law of thermodynamics that says everything left to itself seems to be unraveling and moving toward a state of disorder rather than order. Everything in life that we know of starts out one way but tends to kind of fall apart. Now, if you doubt the second law of thermodynamics, get a picture of yourself from like 15 years ago and then put it up next to the mirror and you'll see the problem with liberalism or progressivism. (laughs) So often, change is actually for the worse. So in a political season where we hear both parties, both candidates falling all over themselves to say who's going to make more changes you go, wait a minute, a lot of changes aren't necessarily for the good. In fact, most changes seem to be for the worst, and that's the problem with with being progressive, that entropy. On the other hand, conservatism doesn't really provide a real solid, legitimate answer either, because if we turn the clock back a 100 years, you know, yes, maybe there aren't certain problems that we have today, but on the other hand, it wasn't so great a hundred years ago. The place was a mess. People were, you know, doing things in some, in some ways worse than they are today. And so you look back, and if you look at it realistically, you go, I'm not sure that the conservatives have the answer. You look at the suggested changes, and you go, I'm not sure that the liberals have the answer either. Well, there's, a, there's another alternative, and that is the alternative of the radical. And Jesus Christ, as a radical, was someone who the conservatives and the liberals had major problems with. Now, radical doesn't mean, often we equate radical with liberal or progressive and just making change for the sake of change. The word radical doesn't mean that at all. The, the word radical at its root in the Latin, it comes from the word radix in Latin, which means root. And what radical is at its very definition is it's saying, let's get back to the root of things. Let's go back to the start. It's why in mathematics a radical number is the base number where you start. It's why in, 
in uh, you know neurology, the when you talk about the radical of the nerve, it's where the nerve can, first connects in with the at its root. And by the way, the word RX, the abbreviation RX that you see for prescriptions on drugstores, that's an abbreviation for the word radix, the Latin word root, because originally prescriptions were a compilation of different roots that would, that would medicate people, so that's where it comes from. Now, when I say Jesus is radical, I say he isn't going, come on, we're going to bring change into the future. He's not the perfect liberal, because... He says things that are totally offensive. Liberals aren't into offending. Liberals are into, let's just be positive, and let's just make all these changes. On the other hand, Jesus wasn't conservative because he offended the establishment. And he didn't just say, we need to get back to the Old Testament, rigid application of the law. Jesus went all the way back to the root of things. He wiped the slate clean, And that's radical. To be able to say, let's get back and start over, let's start from the beginning, that's what amazed people about Jesus, the fact that he was so radical. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why a lot of young people are drawn to Jesus. They were then, they are today. When you depict Jesus the way he really is, young people see something that so often old people can't see. And it's why most people who accept Jesus Christ tend to be younger people. Most of us accepted the Lord when we were younger. Some of you accepted the Lord when you were old, and he'll take you then too. But an old person who gets saved usually has to be at the point where they've completely run out of options. See, as long as an old person has something they can hang on to, they don't want to give it away. It's why the Pharisees were fighting with Jesus constantly because they had invested so much in what they knew, in their understanding of righteousness, that when he came and blew them away and started over, they were like, I don't like this. I don't trust this. I want to hang on where my security lies back in the past. Now, young people, sometimes they look at the way things are, and they realize it shouldn't be this way. And and. So they tend to go, let's just destroy everything. That's very radical. And that's not so far from what God actually wants to do. In the process, a lot of young people get into, you know, retro because they start looking to the past and thinking maybe there was something back there. But ultimately what they love is someone who says, let's just go all the way back and start over. Can we wipe the slate clean It's such a, intuitively, when we're young, we realize that there's an awful lot of things that people think they know that they don't know. When we get older, it's harder to see that. But Jesus Christ was the most radical person, the the person who most said, everything that you know, just throw it aside and let's start over from scratch at the root of the matter. And so here in Mark chapter 2, we see some of the things just boom, 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 some events that Jesus did that were radical. And I think when you see it, you'll agree with me as, as they would agree back then, this guy is radical. So the first thing is, he's in Capernaum, he's there, he's in the house in verse 1, and immediately verse 2, that word that Mark uses a lot of times, people are crowding around, getting near the door, Jesus is preaching, and we see a paralytic, a guy who was paralyzed, 
who was being carried by his four friends in verse 3. And in verse 4, they couldn't get anywhere near Jesus. They were hoping that the paralyzed guy would get healed. So they climb up on the roof of the house where he was teaching, and they found about the location of where Jesus was, and they tore a hole in the roof and lowered this paralyzed guy down in his wheelchair, on his bed actually, down in front of Jesus. Now, right away at first you go, there's something different about Jesus, because most preachers you wouldn't even think of doing such a thing, of interrupting them in the middle of them doing their spiel. So you, th- you see, they, they somehow felt that this guy might be open to an unconventional approach. And so they lowered him down, and when Jesus saw their faith in verse 5, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, if I was the paralytic, I'd go, Oh, I didn't come here for my sins. Maybe you didn't notice I can't move my arms and legs. Uh, Now, most commentators believe that this paralytic was paralyzed as a result of, and some of the things in the language indicate the possibility, that he had had a disease that was as a result of some gross sin, and perhaps from some STD or something in its advanced stages, he was paralyzed. And Jesus, like, calls him out. Now, for the paralytic guy, this was a little disturbing to in front of all these people. It's hard to shrink back in the crowd when you came through the roof. But... <laughs> But look at the reaction from the conservatives. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, that's going to be the point. (laughs) But they're going, who does this guy think he is? Forgive your sins? Your sins are forgiven? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus, this was a radical thing to say. For one thing, most people in good company wouldn't even talk about sin. But the scribes and the Pharisees who were very conservative, they would talk about sin, but it wasn't about forgiveness of sins. It was about you need to not sin, you need to be more like us, you need to follow the rules. So a progressive person, a Sadducee or someone like that, would never talk about sin because, well, that could be offensive. So Jesus makes this statement that would be offensive to liberals and conservatives, and he gets right to the root of the problem. Radical. He goes, whenever you see something wrong, this is about sin. You can't avoid the fact that this world is messed up because people don't do what God says. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, all the way back to the Garden of Eden to that point when man first decided to do what he wanted to do instead of what God wanted to do. That's what's wrong with this world. Now, a liberal will look at the problems of the world and try to solve the problems. And that's a nice sentiment. And that's a good thing 
to do. I applaud their efforts to look at the world and go, wow, people are poor, they're hungry, they're sick, they're uneducated, let's fix all that. It's a nice thought. But the problem is, if you don't get back to the root problem, and that is the problem of sin, then all you're doing at best is polishing the brass on a sinking ship, and usually the sin is going to compound long before you can ever fix all of those symptoms of sin. So Jesus radically comes along and says, let's talk about the source of the problem, and that's sin. But now, to a conservative, they would go, I'm glad he's talking about sin, because people need to know that they're sinning because I don't do it as much as they do. And so they need to be more like me and deal with their sin. That would be a Pharisee's position. Jesus shocks the liberals by addressing the fact that a guy can't walk, and this has something to do with sin, but he shocks the conservatives by without this guy making any change in his lifestyle, by just looking at him and saying, your sins are forgiven because I say so. Radical. It gets back to who he is. And he says, the point is, I am a person who can forgive sins. And then he said, oh, by the way, I can make a guy walk too. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. They're like, oh, he's backing up what he says about sin with what he can actually do in an obvious and a clear way. And they looked at that after he did that. It says, verse 12, immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is completely unprecedented. This is totally radical. He took everything that we thought we knew and turned it on, turned it on its head. And the conservatives are upset because he forgives so easy. And the liberals are upset because he talked about sin. But the bottom line is a guy who was crippled is now glorifying God and walking and isn't that what it's all about? What an impression this made on people. Because Jesus took it back to the root, and he dealt with that root. He dealt with that problem. Now Mark goes on and tells next about when Matthew, or he's also called Levi, was called as a disciple. Jesus called people as disciples, and none of them were really qualified to be a disciple. There wasn't a theologian in the bunch. In this case, Levi was a tax collector. In those days, that was another way of saying he was a cheater and a fraud, IRS agent. And because, <laughs> but, but in those days, the guy that worked for the IRS, sorry if you do today, you really get ripped off, you just get paid. In those days, they could cheat people and then they could keep whatever they made, skimming it off the top. They were also considered traitors because they were collecting taxes for Rome, but Matthew was a Jew who was collecting money from his own people to give to Rome, stealing some of it for himself. They were the lowest of the low. People hated these guys. But Jesus went along, people following him, he's teaching. And as he passed by in verse 14, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. 
So he arose and followed him. Wow. No, let me have your resume. No, we got to fix a few things. No, he just, he sees this cheater sitting there and goes, come on. And he came. Why would a, why would a guy leave a job like that? Well, everyone hated him for his job. He was miserable in it. Anybody, you know, people wanted him dead. Who would ever want that job? See, he was a guy who knew that he had settled for a job that was just going to make him miserable. And so when somebody offered an alternative, he was open to it. But read on. It happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners... So that was kind of the same thing, but other sinners too, just just the lowest of the lows were hanging out there, sat together with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many, and they followed him. Well, the conservatives saw this, and they go, look at the kind of people you're hanging around with. Bunch of smelly fishermen, a tax collector, you got Simon the Zealot, who's like a terrorist. And you're collecting all these guys, and this is who is following you. And so the scribes and Pharisees, back in the day, we would never have anything to do with this. They saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, and they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard him say it, and he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I did not call to come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's that sin word again. But he said, basically, what he says to these guys who were good people, they thought they were. They thought they were good because they were better than most people. And in this life, if you really want to be self-righteous, it's pretty easy to be better than the average person. And that's who the Pharisees were and the scribes, better than the average trying to be good so they could look down their nose at others and be judgmental. And Jesus said, I didn't actually come for people like you. You're not ready. I came to reach people who realize they have no other choice. I came to scrape people from the bottom of the barrel. I came to reach people who are absolutely desperate because they're the ones who know that they are in need of a Savior. And if you're going to spend all your time trying to convince people that they are a sinner, then we can't move on. You ever try to talk to somebody about the Lord and they just don't believe they're a sinner? They believe they're a good person? If, if somebody starts giving me that, you know, how good they are, I'm better than most Christians, I don't think they're ready. I'd rather move on. I love talking to somebody who will say, believe me, I know I'm a sinner. I have messed up in so many different ways. I've fouled my life up. I'm at the bottom. I don't have any other options. I love hearing that, and Jesus did too, because he said, that's the people I come for. I don't come to people who think they don't need help. I came to people to reach people who are desperate for a way out of the hole that they've dug themselves into, and that was pretty radical to offer forgiveness of sins to these kind of people, to call them to follow him, and then to not spend all of his time telling them how they need to change, but instead extending forgiveness and allowing 
the Spirit of God to work in their lives and to develop them, that was radical. And it gets back to the root. And people who have destroyed their lives with sin are generally much closer to understanding who Jesus is than people who think that they're getting better and better all the time. Self-righteous people never can get Jesus. Oh, they may think they do, but their lives are betrayed by the reality of the fact that when they look at the people that Jesus chooses to hang out with and they go, boy, I'm glad I'm not one of them. Yeah, you, you missed the boat. Jesus didn't come for people like you. He came for people who realize that they're messing their lives up and they're looking for a way out and they're ready to repent of their sins. And this was radical because, again, the liberals, they don't want to hear about sin. The, the conservatives, they want to talk about other people's sins but not their own. They're hypocrites. But the, but the sinners, they're the ones who are ready for help. And Jesus said, that's who I came to. That's where I am in a grassroots level sort of place. So again, what an impression this makes. The kind of people Jesus was hanging around with, grassroots people. Jesus was the first one who would say as the old country song, I have friends in low places. <laughs> that was Jesus. Now they start following him, and now they really want to trip him up. People who are legalistic and, and self-righteous and conservative, really, they love to find a chink in the armor of somebody who's offering a different way to do it because they've invested an awful lot in becoming who they are. And so the Pharisees, the religious people, began to follow Jesus and try to find something wrong with him. So one of the first things they began to pick on next was the fact that his disciples weren't fasting. Oh, they fasted all the time. They were always denying themselves. John's disciples, they would fast too. Jesus' disciples, they were always having potlucks. You know, they're just they're always eating and picking out, you know, had donuts after church. And and it was like they were going, Why can you party the way you do? You know, well, this is the life that they knew, and Jesus wasn't ready to interrupt them. But he, he went ahead and gave this illustration. He said, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Weddings in those days were affairs that went on for weeks, and it was one big potluck just tons of celebrating, and the friends of the bridegroom would be with him just eating up and celebrating and rejoicing. And you don't go to a wedding to fast. You wouldn't go to a banquet in order to do that. Every year when we have our Christmas banquet here in the church, people bring all this food, and the whole foyer is lined with tables of incredible food, everybody bringing their favorite dishes, you wouldn't come and then go, I think we should all fast tonight. <laughs> now, when you're, when you're at a banquet, you should eat. When you're in a restaurant that you like, you ought to eat what's there. There's a place for fasting. And he said, when I go away, believe me, they're going to do some fasting. But right now, they're in a time of celebrating being with me, 
and they're going to eat. This was something that the Pharisees couldn't understand because they felt like they hadn't been invited to the party. They thought that what they were invited to wasn't a banquet. They thought that it was you know, a, a life of denial. We, went, we took our kids out for dinner last night and kind of celebrating our Anne and my anniversary, 29th anniversary was this week, and then Danny's going off to school, and Will and Brittany are getting married, so we're kind of celebrating all those things, and we went out to eat, and down at the Montage, and food's incredible, and you're eating, and it's like, by the time I was finished, I'm like, I don't think I'll ever eat again, you know? And yet, you know, by the time I come into church this morning, there's a cold croissant with the egg and cheese, and oh, man, you know? But there's a time to eat, there's a time to fast, there's a time to do without. And Jesus is just going, you don't get it. You don't see where we are. And then to explain it, he gives a couple of other illustrations. And he says in verse 21, if you're sewing up a, an old piece of clothing, you don't sew a brand new piece of fabric onto it. Like if you have an old pair of Levi's and they're all shrunk down and comfortable, you don't get a brand new piece of denim and stitch it really tight to the Levi's because when you wash them, the new denim will shrink and it'll rip up the old Levi's. So you either patch it with old cloth or you save your patch new cloth for patching new clothes. And then he goes on in verse 22 to talk about wine and wineskins. And he says, if you have some new wine, it's just popping, it's just fermenting. You don't pour it into an old crusty wineskin. The, the chemical reactions and everything will just crack the wineskin and bust it open. And basically what he's saying is, it's time for a paradigm shift. He's making this radical declaration that, you know what, we have to start from the beginning, back to square one. We need to get back to the roots, and, and that's what I'm doing, that's who I am, and that's what I'm trying to communicate. And as long as you guys want to hang on to whatever traditions and preconceived notions that you have, and by the way, conservatives and liberals are both very traditional in some ways. The, the progressives are trying to take everything that we have and improve upon it, so they're obsessed with what we have. Conservatives are trying to go back and find where it is that we got off track. Jesus would say, you're both wrong because you got off track from the beginning and what you need to do is wipe the slate clean. It's time for a demo job. In order to move ahead, you need to go back to the root and start over. And that's what radical Jesus was trying to communicate to them. Now, it goes on in the chapter here, and they were out in the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples, verse 23, began to pluck the heads of grain. Now, the Pharisees had taken the mandate from the Old Testament law that says, you don't work on the Sabbath. And they said, even if you're hungry and walking through a field and you grab a piece of fruit or you pull off a chunk of grain, stick it in your mouth, that's work. You can't do it better to be hungry. And so they jumped all over this and said to him, look, why did they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're breaking the rules, and they're freaking out about it. Jesus reminded them of a story that would have been close and personal to them over in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David, who was their hero, the Pharisees' hero, 
was at one point he and his men were hungry. And so they came to the priest and they go, we need something to eat. And the priest said, the only thing we have to eat is bread that's already been prepared for the priest and it's sanctified. And the law says nobody can eat it but a Levite. And David goes, we're starved. Come on, make it common and let us, you know, they go, well, I mean, it can't go to anyone who's violated the law in any way. And, and he goes, have your, the, the priest said to David, have your guys, uh, for instance, been with women? And he goes, well, not for a few days. <laughs> okay, here. <laughs> and gave them, gave them the bread and they ate it. And so Jesus says, didn't you read about that? They ate what was not lawful to eat except for the priests. And then he put it into perspective and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus said, you guys are taking the law and acting like the law was made to rule over people. And he goes, you don't get it. The Sabbath wasn't made to make someone's life miserable or to make someone hungry. The Sabbath was made for people's good. It was made so that people would relax and take a day off. It wasn't so that you'd always worry, oh, am I doing the right or the wrong thing on the Sabbath? Because you totally don't understand the law. You've allowed the law to develop into something that's ugly and hurtful and horrible. And people will always do that. They'll take something that is so basic and helpful and common sense, and they'll twist it and turn it and yank it to where it's something that makes your life miserable. He goes, give me some common sense. There's nothing wrong with this. That's not what God had in mind when he made that rule. It was okay with God that David had the holy bread, and it's okay right now that we're eating the stuff. And you go, whoa, that's radical. Who are you? I mean, we have the opinions of all of the rabbis. We have not only the law, but all of the commentaries on the law. And now you're coming along and going, don't worry about it. You sound like a liberal. No, the liberals had their perspective of the law. And they basically watered the law down until it didn't mean anything at all. And that wasn't Jesus. In this case, you could see where they'd get that idea. But in other cases, like you look at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was teaching on the law, he said, in some places you guys have interpreted the law in a way too rigid way, but in other ways you've missed the point of the law and it's way more strict than what you think. He goes, you know, you have the law that, oh, a man can't commit adultery. If he does, he gets a divorce. But I'm telling you, you look and lust after people, you're already committing adultery in your heart. You, you understand that, oh, if you kill someone, then you need to be killed. But you don't understand, if you're saying that you hate someone, that's like killing them in your heart. So Jesus that sometimes would have made the, the liberals go nuts, as he did with the Sadducees. And other times he made the conservatives nuts because he was going, you're making too big of a deal out of this. There was common sense involved in why the rules were made. And rules aren't made so that people will follow them. Rules are made so that people can benefit from them, use some sense. But then his point is, because you look at it and go, oh, then we can rewrite all the rules. No, we can't rewrite all the rules. The point is, Jesus could, 
rewrite and explain anything that he wants because, as he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I made this stuff up in the first place. So I think I can tell you what it means. Now, we can learn a lot from the principles, and we can recognize that any time we take law and make it in a way that's meant to just punish people in a ridiculous way, clearly that wasn't what God had in mind. We have it on the authority of Jesus to say it. We have to be careful because, and and this is the problem with trying to be a radical, because, you know, I could go, okay, now you see what a conservative is. You don't really want to be one of those. You see what a liberal progressive pinhead is. You don't want to be one of those. Um, What we want to be is radical. Well, not necessarily, because getting back to the roots of a matter, blowing everything up and starting over is only as good as the person who does it. Because if we just go reinvent everything in our flesh, we will probably do a worse job than history itself did, and we'd be better off being a liberal or a conservative than to be a radical on our own. The point, though, is there is a radical Lord that we can follow. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of everything. And He is the radical that I want to follow. You can go, man, you've been pretty hard on the conservatives and the liberals. Why don't we be a radical church? Well, for one thing, if we just decided let's be a radical church, most of you would be gone. I realize that. Because some of you are more tend toward progressive liberalism. And you're in the church, but here's how you know if you're, if you're lean that way. You're going, I hope one of these days... Dave steps into the 21st century, and he starts to use more PowerPoint presentations and bigger productions and skits, and I wish he would just come into modern times. But, you know, we'll wait around, and I'm sure he's going to progress eventually, you know, and and you're going... Man, it's so dumping our kids in there with those partitions and the junior high and high school kids in a bus. And I know they're, and we are, we're making plans to build, so we are making progress. But, but you're waiting for that to happen. If we were really radical, you progressives would go, this is too far out for me. On the other hand, you conservatives probably wouldn't hang if I just said, we're going to be the most radical church in the county. Because you are waiting for me to start wearing a suit. And you know, (laughs) maybe you saw me at a wedding or a funeral, and and it's like, I like that. And you're thinking, hey, they're going to remodel the sanctuary because we're going to punch out the sides and we're going to make the sanctuary bigger. Maybe they'll get an organ again, and we can start. And so you're hanging in there. But if I... If I go, let's just be radical, I'm going to lose the conservatives. I'm going to lose the liberals. There's just going to be a handful of radical nuts that are left. And, <laughs> and all the people who are clueless and just go, hey, I don't know. I just come here for the donuts. I don't care about any of that stuff. <laughs> so it's not about how can we be radical. What it's about is we need to follow a radical savior. We need to follow Jesus Christ. We need to do whatever he shows us to do. And sometimes that's going to be offensive to the political correctness of the progressives. Other times it's going to offend the 
conservative, careful, cautious nature of a conservative. But we just need to follow Jesus. We are Christians. We are those who follow a radical Savior. And I want to get back to the roots in every area of life, every day, to come to him and go, I just want to do what you want me to do. I don't care who it offends. I don't care who it bothers. I don't care if it's been done before or it hasn't been done before, but I want to make sure that I'm following you from the roots. I don't want to just go back and invent everything myself. I don't want it to hang on my creativity, but I don't want to hold back any of your creativity, Lord, in what you might want to do in my life and in our families and in our church. And it's in going through the gospel of Mark that I hope we begin to see this again, just this picture of this radical Jesus, and that all bets are off and we wipe the slate clean and we go, I just want to be like him. I want him working in my life. Now, again, in this political season, you go, I wish there was a radical to vote for. You know, radicals never get elected to anything. Jesus was rejected by almost everyone. People elect conservatives. They elect progressives. They don't elect radicals. They crucify them because they offend everyone on all sides, and that's not the way you win. But Jesus gave his life for us so that when we finally hit bottom, when we finally realize there's no hope, all of my liberal optimism has worn out, and all of my conservative hanging on to the past has become completely disillusioned. And there's radical Jesus saying, follow me, stick with me, live with me. And that's what I'm counting on. That's what I'm banking on. That's what I want for my life. And I hope you do too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for having the courage of being a true radical. And we're sorry when we just try to go along with whatever trend is there, hanging on to the past in some pathetic nostalgia or moving into the future by changing things when we don't even understand how we got here in the first place. Lord, bring us back to the root, to you, the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star, the one who is all of our hope. Jesus, we want to know you. And like that Pharisee, Saul, we want to come to the end of ourselves and count everything that we've been trusting in as dung compared to knowing you. May we see you clearly, Lord Jesus. May we walk with you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's all stand. You know, if there's anybody here today who doesn't really know Jesus, you've never given your life.